Hello, folks, and welcome to episode one of the Chats Overs. I am your stalwart host, Alan Ibrahim. I'm not joined by Magellan just yet because I'm here to introduce what we're doing with this first episode of the Chats Overs. If you're not aware, Magellan and I piloted the leftovers over on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash chatspod, several months ago, uh, back in Pilot Chats episode 45. We watched the leftovers pilot. We had a full discussion of it, and that is originally where we decided we wanted to watch the show. That being said, while we did rewatch the pilot for this episode of the podcast, we didn't have too many new thoughts on it. So the way this episode is going to be formatted is what you're going to hear after I finish talking here is that original Pilot Chats episode. This is for folks who aren't patrons and maybe to entice them to consider trying out our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash chatspod. And uh, if you are a patron and you have already heard that discussion, then I recommend you skip ahead to a timestamp I will be listing in the description. It should be about 50-something minutes into this podcast. So while the episode file may look very long, that's because we're including the full Pilot Chats episode. And after that, we have brief thoughts on our rewatch of the pilot, and then we roll right into our discussion of episode two. So with all that being said, Please enjoy our Pilot Chats discussion of The Leftovers, Episode 1. Hello and welcome to Pilot Chats, the show where we pilot television. Is that how you want the intro to sound? Or do you want to do another one? I was totally willing to let that just be the intro. Fuck! No, no, that's the intro now. Too bad. It's Patreon. No, I don't care. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> do it again. I'm going to be annoyed when I'm editing if that's the intro where we interrupt it. It's the pilot show. Oh, crap. Do it again. No, pilot chats. No, do it again. Hello and welcome to pilot chats. (laughs) Alan, that's Magellan. Do it again where you... It's like just a clean intro. Hello. 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 Magellan, how do you feel yeah. about mass death? <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's not great. As of the last couple of years, I have an opinion on mass death. <laughs> I can I can say that I am one of the human beings throughout all of human history. Who feels a certain way about that topic? Do you like it? No. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Yeah, it's uh, it's February now, Magellan, and yep. it's colder than ever. Yep. I spent all of last weekend indoors. Yep. I miss people. I miss my friends, and I miss not worrying about a deadly virus. Uh, sometimes I wish we talked about more plague shows, but would that be kind of inappropriate? Well... We talked about the stand right at the beginning of COVID, so oopsie. Um, <laughs> but we're here to talk about a different sort of show, about a different sort of mass disappearance, if you will. Uh, it is 2014's adaptation of the Tom Parada novel, The Leftovers, HBO's series from that aired from 2014 to 2017. And it stars Justin Thoreau as Kevin Garvey, the father of a family who are dealing with the aftermath of an event known as the event. I think it's actually called something else. Uh, 
But October 14, 2011 in universe, 2% of the world's population spontaneously disappeared all at once with no trace of where they were or who they were. And uh, it is about the leftovers, the people who weren't disappeared uh, and and how they've learned to cope in the three years since. Um, we, we watched the pilot. Magellan, you have not seen the leftovers before. Is that correct? That's correct. I always in my head conflate the leftovers with that series of novels left behind that's like oh sure about the teenagers post christian rapture type thing uh so i thought it was like that and it's not but it's not not either (laughs) it definitely knows what it is evoking when they say stuff like that um yeah i watched the leftovers uh, or at least I watched two thirds of it. It went for three seasons. Um, I never watched any of the third season, um, but I watched seasons one and two as they were airing. I think. Is there a reason you didn't watch the third season? No. Okay. So, I, uh, 2014, I'm watching shows, but mostly on recommendation from like film and TV critics. That's where I. That's what got me into the show, and the premise is awesome. And David Lindelof was a co-writer, co-creator on the show, the guy who worked on Lost. So I was like, oh, a Lost mystery show, um, but one well, that actually sounds good and not stupid. Um, 2017 though, I had started Fireside Friends and I was very busy and I was in my post back. So I wasn't keeping up with a lot of the shows I was watching. I um, I was just talking to you and Ryan off pod between our peace chats recording about like 2018 feels like a weird blurry year for me. And I think it's actually like 2017 to 2018 where like, mm-hmm. that's exactly when I was doing my post back. And so I just kind of like put new shows to the wayside and I don't even remember what media I was consuming at the time really. <laughs> Well, we were doing the podcast. Yes, that's true. I was watching a lot of Farscape. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and so and I was. Like, yeah, I was busy and whatever we were watching. Yeah, and finishing. Um, yeah, actually, no, Buffy would have been done by then. So it just didn't occur to me. I don't even know. I don't think I remember it even coming out, or I was just like, I don't think I care anymore. Even though I liked both seasons one and two a lot, I think the show mm-hmm. uh, gets like a linearly better um, as it fleshes itself out and and mm-hmm. and, and and like builds out its universe. Um. But man, is it heavy, dude? You gotta, yeah. I, you gotta throw some sort of warning up top, and they kind of do. But let's like, this is a show about people coping with a mass disappearance, a mass loss of human life, and what does that mean, yeah. and how do you progress? That's on a fundamental level. That's what the book was about, and that's what the show is about. How did you feel about it? I really liked it. I thought it was incredible, and I um. It it was like strange to me how how relieving it felt to watch a show that was dealing with this sort of subject matter in a manner as directly as it does. Because at at first I was like upset by it um, for obvious reasons, but unlike the stand, (laughs) which takes a global pandemic as this sort of like whatever, set dressing it wants to do in order to tell the story of Randall Flagg's good mm-hmm. fun times in Las Vegas or whatever <laughs> the stand is about. Um, unlike that, the leftovers is like, no, it's society is still trying to be the way it was before, but they're dealing with this like huge, huge elephant in every single room, which was really I felt really connected to it because I think we're at a phase of the COVID pandemic where 
things feel like that all the time. Like this feels mm-hmm. like a very 2022 show. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the line that really got me there was when they're talking about the police and the mayor are talking about this like parade that they want to throw for the third anniversary of the event. And Kevin, one of our main characters says to the mayor, nobody's ready to feel better. They're ready to fucking explode. And like, that's what it feels like to live in 2022. Um, so I, I really liked the show for that reason. Um, and I was also kind of like, noticing and troubled by the fact that when they say 140 million people died in the event, I was like, okay, but can you measure that in COVIDs? How many COVIDs is that? How many COVIDs is that? <laughs> like that's a, now that's like a unit of measurement for me mm-hmm. is okay. Sure. Sure. 140 million. So that's what, like 20 COVIDs, something like that. Got it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and also the, the, the fundamental difference as well being we know what killed people from COVID. Um, it's COVID. Mm. Um, but like they on a basic level do not know why or how these people disappeared. There's a lot of background television and news punditry about like was it an act of God? What do scientists think about it? We have to believe in science, but science has absolutely for sure no idea why this happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, people can be hesitant hearing about the show. And it's also its connection to Lost is like, oh, they're going to have to answer this. They cashed a check, blah, blah, blah. Stuff that I've literally said about other mystery shows before. You know, when we talk about the supernatural stuff in Yellow Jackets, it's like, well, now you have to, you've, you're catching a check, basically. Um, and what I really, really appreciate about re- appreciate about The Leftovers is there is no expectation that that question is going to be answered because the point is that you can't answer it. And no answer will be satisfying enough that you'll be like, oh, that's what it was. Oh, it was a virus. Or like, oh, it was God. Like, But in the universe of the show, everybody so desperately wants there to just be an answer. How satisfying and cathartic would it be to just say, okay, here's why. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's a show about a bunch of people who were left behind and they don't know if that's a good or a bad thing on a basic level. Did we F up? Did we succeed? Were we all in the right place at the right time? Did we ingest yeah. something? Did we say something? Like, what was the key that kept all of us here? Uh, yeah. It's- and I, I think it's just such a genius, simple premise to get us, like you're saying, to get us to these sort of deeper human questions and to accentuate um the general feeling that you can have about life sometimes of like, why, why do things happen this way? I don't know. They do anyway, keep on living. And this show is kind of that times a million. Why did 2% of the world's population die? I don't know, but we're still here. So we have to make sense of it or ignore it or whatever. And you get to do all that without having to like explain it. Uh, or say, and here's how it happened, or show it happening, or whatever. You can just say, it happened. Anyway, three years later, the story starts. Um, and I think that's like really engaging, and um, it works for me that it's it's almost just a hand wave of like, I don't know, we just want to tell a story in a world where everybody is like trying to sort through this shared traumatic experience. So that's what we're doing. 
Yeah, three three years is enough that you know, like if it if the show took place where the first scene did, where the mother is like you know witnessing it happening, which is an incredible choice to start your show at the moment and yeah. then go snap fingers three years. Right. That's them saying it's not about the event; it's about people coping with the event. Yeah. That's why you shouldn't care about why it happened. It's because it's not that's answering that will never make you feel like you understand these people better or that you feel satisfied. It's just the show is not built for that. It actually uh, distances you from understanding their experience because they don't know why it happened. Right. And they never knew. They've spent three years celebrating, eulogizing, uh, going through all of these. This is such a recurring theme of rituals and like how mm-hmm. we hang mm-hmm. on so tightly to rituals of, of life, of day-to-day life. Um, with some hope that that's going to mean something, um, but with this like constant nagging feeling in the back of our heads that maybe none of this means anything. Maybe we're wasting our energy doing yeah. all of this. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's also really smart that it puts us in the shoes of, uh, you know, a separated family, a family that, you know, in any other version of the story, you would make these characters all be together, and it would be about them getting along despite their hard circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the leftovers especially the show and I, I i i have not read the book myself but i've read about the book i've read the summary of the book um i'm interested in it but it sounds a lot messier than the show honestly for example this is the fact that kevin is the mayor of mapleton and not a cop like he's oh. the mayor of the whole town which is That's... just an interesting choice yeah um we'll talk about kevin and being a cop in a sec but like this isn't just like hey here's a family that that survives it's like they survived, but they're not, they're barely a family anymore. The daughter, like, doesn't talk to her dad. Um, she has this complicated relationship with her best friend and is, like, struggling to feel something just like young people already did before the event. Right. Uh, you have this father whose wife left him. You have a, a and is trying to find order as a police officer and not finding it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just people all seeking answers and seeking feeling. Um, and then you have the wife, Lori, who we learn is his wife at the very end of this episode, this pilot, uh, who joined a really interesting faction that I'm excited to talk about, the Guilty Remnant, mm-hmm. um, who are basically like survivors who want to, uh, we don't really know a lot about what their overall goals are, but it seems like the general gist is like, don't forget, don't ever let the event leave your mind. Uh, mm-hmm. We are the constant reminder that it happened. And so she's a part of that. They're a, a, a group that don't ever speak out loud. Um and then you have his son Tom, who is joined this like full-on compound, scary cult, the cult of Wayne, uh, who is a magical faith healer man. And you know that's where we get a little bit interesting. That's where the show kind of twists its uh, its supernatural thing in your face a little bit. Um, I'm curious, first of all, which of these plot lines resonated with you the most? That's a really good question. I felt that I could best understand Kevin, even though the stuff with like, I have very mixed feelings about the cop stuff. Um, and then I can sympathize with Jill and like understand what she's going through. Even if I don't necessarily like feel as connected to her story and then the son, what's the son's name? Tom. Tom, it's like, what? What are you doing, Tom? Yeah, that one's a longer tale. It, not a longer tale. It's mostly con- con- contained in season one. But, like, it's there's not a lot of answers there right now. There's nothing to, like, chew into right right now. Right. At least nothing, and, nothing explicit. 
Yeah, and then Lori is kind of, I just have a lot of questions. I'm interested, especially by the end of the episode, it's like, okay, now I know that she's connected to other characters, uh, and it feels like that's right now presented more as like a hook than it is something that they've explored. So I think it's also just this episode explores Kevin and it explores Jill, um, and it doesn't really explore the other two quite as much. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the little bits of Tom that we get are mostly like implying things that you could put together that'll be made explicit mm-hmm. later, like mm-hmm. his interactions with Christine, who is a woman, a young girl who lives at Wayne's compound and he like brings her food and recounts uh, The Bachelor to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, what's going on? Why is there just like a girl at this guy's compound? But like, I don't know. You know how cults work. It's it's a, it's about as weird as you think it is. And Wayne talks about like, hey, a lot of bad stuff's going to happen soon. So, yeah. um, you know, that 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 also ends up just being about faith. Like the brief mo- things that we see of Tom are just that when he was in college, he saw two people jump off of a building after the event and was so shooken by that that he he dropped out of college and joined up with the cult of Wayne. Um, right. Which, again, is this cult that believes in this guy, Wayne, who uh, can heal you. He's a healer. Um, but yeah, let's talk about our buddy Kevin Garvey, played by the homie Justin Thoreau. Uh-huh. Um, and his role as a sort of like attempt to be an arbiter of the law in a world that has no interest in in order or mm-hmm. uh, any sort of stability like that. People have mostly accepted that order doesn't work and then we have to like let things be chaotic. And he's right. a cop. They chose to take him from being the mayor in the book to being a police officer. Yeah. And it's one of the rare examples where I feel like they knew, like a lot of times uh, shows especially will make characters cops because it gives them access to a lot of investigation stuff and it lets them use a gun in public. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an easy, it's a relatively easy narrative thing. But I think Kevin being a cop specifically is like, he wants to feel like he has control. Yeah. And because he knows he doesn't. And he's he's desperately, desperately trying to avoid that. He's a heavy drinker. Uh, you know, he is like constantly out of it. He feels very detached from the world. He has these dreams and these visions of animals. Um, mm-hmm. they mentioned I think they mentioned his father at one point, his like complicated relationship with his father. Uh-huh. And he had one of the most interesting moments during the event, which was uh we learned by the end of the episode that he was having an affair and the woman that he was in the middle of having sex with disappeared mid coitus yeah. and uh and now and then his his actual wife lori left to join the guilty remnant mm-hmm. so kevin is without any sort of grounding or family or anything um yeah but again all of his family is alive like so in a way he has this privilege as opposed to a character who will only get a peek at but i really really love she's actually my favorite character on the show uh which mm. is nora durst Mm-hmm. Um, Nord is a character who uh, lost her entire family. She yeah. lost her two kids and her husband. Mm-hmm. And it you get the sense that the town is like not parading that, but like mythologizing that. Like that has to somehow make her more like intelligent or aware of things because she lost more people. Yeah. And the that, mayor... And that, the mayor says she lost her entire family, Doug. She can say whatever the fuck she wants to. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It, and it's, it's just that it's that simple. Like to her, it's just 
uh, she tells this beautiful story towards the end of the episode mm-hmm. about like I had a really great day with my family and that wasn't the best day of my life. The best day was afterwards when we got sick and we were all just sick together, but at least we were alive and at least we knew where we were. Yeah. And now and then they were all gone. And I just find that so fascinating. I find Nora to be such a, a captivating character. I think it's a lot of it is the performance of Carrie Coon, who plays her mm-hmm. and is just like an incredible actress. Um, I think she brings out a lot of of that character. Uh, and yeah, she's, she's interesting. She, you'll also see, you know, interactions with her and like Christopher Eccleston who briefly makes a cameo in here. Uh, Christopher Eccleston, the doctor guy, the, the guy who, um, is like, Oh, officer. Like he's yelling at all the people in the crowd and oh, yeah. uh-huh. he's like, Hey Matt, his name's Matt in the show. Um, like they have a whole thing and it's like so fascinating. I don't know. I don't want to just talk about you know, we thought this was really good and I know that the show gets better. Um, but I'm wondering what else there is plot wise in this. I guess we can talk a little bit about the guilty remnant and sort of their whole what we think their whole deal is. Yeah, well, I kind of want to talk about um, I want to stick with Kevin for a bit because I think there are two crucial things that happen in this pilot episode related to him that. Yeah, that I think are worth unpacking. The first is like one of the early moments that we're introduced to him. He meets a dog walking around the neighborhood and he he's like, hey, buddy, come here. And then witnesses a guy shoot the dog. And he then spends most of the rest of the episode with a dog, dead dog in his trunk. He tries to return it to or tell the owner and, and that's a whole thing. And she's like, I don't even care. And then he runs into the guy who shot the dog at the bar and he's like, Hey, why'd you do that? And then we learn at some point, somebody talking about this rumor that there's like wild packs of formerly domesticated dogs who are now like, uh, ownerless or they were driven mad by witnessing the event happen. Right. And then he runs into a pack of dogs and they maul this like vision deer that he'd been seeing all day. Yeah. And the episode ends with him, doing what his daughter thought he couldn't possibly do, which is he joins the guy in shooting at the dogs. And I like that to me was just such an incredible motif and way to characterize him and like witness in real time what this world is doing to people and just like what it looks like to to break down and to, as he said, fucking explode mm-hmm. um, in 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 this environment. And what a good parallel to the beginning of the episode, like you said. I think that this is an incredible pilot, yeah. you know, to speak yeah. to it as a pilot. I think it has a, like, a loop narrative. Um, it, it, it starts with the event and then ends with people, like, realizing that change doesn't just happen. Like, the event didn't change certain things. And also... Uh, it did fundamentally change other things. Um, and also him worrying about the dog being shot and saying the line, you can't kill our dogs. And then the guy who's been doing this says, they're not our dogs anymore, or these aren't our dogs. Uh, which is so like works in a book really well. If I have yeah. any critique of the first season, it's that occasionally it feels like um, they took lines from the book that make sense when you read them, but you see them and you're like, that's a really weird thing to say. But it just works really well because everything's delivered by actors like at the top of their game over and over again. 
and mm. you really feel it. It's like kind of goofy, but you really feel it when he like cocks his gun and just starts like attacking these dogs because he's like, this is the one thing that was like motivating me. And now I don't, I already don't care. Like nihilism is so easy to get to. There's something about that moment. The fact that it comes after him having this flashback to the woman that he was having an affair with, the fact that it comes after him trying to reconnect with his wife, uh, and the, it comes after you seeing the family photo and seeing all the members of the family. And like you said, you now understand the whole episode is sort of like quietly allowing you to think that he is this way because someone close to him disappeared. Like, oh, there's no there's no mom. There's no wife. Maybe she disappeared. And that's why he's unstable or upset. And I think what's really smart about the choice to not have that be the case and like, I mean, I don't know how close he was with this person that he was having an affair with. Maybe it was the love of his life. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know. But the choice to like not have it be the obvious thing of, oh, my wife disappeared makes this point of like this event touches everybody regardless of who you lost or didn't lose, these people now live in a world where they could start the day saying that you shouldn't shoot dogs and the end, they end the day just like filling a pack of dogs with bullets. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about in relation to him was the scene at the parade that turns into a sort of riot thing. And maybe that relates to the guilty remnant and stuff we wanted to talk about with them. Yeah, this is uh, one of the like iconic images of the leftovers is a bunch of people of different ages and sizes and creeds, all dressed in all white, never speaking, constantly smoking cigarettes. Um, there's a lot of smoking cigarettes in this pilot, but it's mostly the guilty remnant. The um, cigarette stuff was really funny to me <laughs> because like, yeah. of course, 2% of the population disappears and then everyone's like, fuck it. Smoking a pack a day. <laughs> Who cares? None of this matters anymore. And yeah. and that's I think they go into it a little bit more later, but there is a sign in the guilty remnant compound that says like we smoke because, you know, as a reminder, you know, like we choose this is like us choosing to shorten our lives instead of the world taking our lives from us, is what I mm. think 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 it is. Interesting. Um but also like the interesting decision that in the book, they are a religious group, and in the show, they are a nihilistic atheist group. Um, is so fascinating to me because I'm sure you can imagine religion comes into play in this show constantly. Um, it very much feels like a dis a, a conversation between like really uh spiritual people and atheists. Like it is, and it doesn't take a side. You know, we have mm -hmm. Wayne who you get the sense may or may not be a charlatan maybe, or is he? Okay. But what's so fascinating is because 2% of the people disappeared. What does being a charlatan mean anymore? <laughs> like you could just be right. I could not believe you. And, but your stuff keeps working and maybe you've been right all along. There's nothing is, there's no longer any like reality for us to, to latch onto and say, Oh, everything else is fake. This is real. No matter how much people on the TV want to say, like, oh, science is real. And I think that's where the guilty remnant end up being really fascinating is they are like, 
no, we need you guys to know that this happened and we don't want people to cope and we don't want people to live normal lives anymore. This permanently affected society. Let's stop trying to live in comfort. That's yeah. where they find uh, Meg was played by um, Liv Tyler. And again, it's not spoken. I believe it gets it, it developed later, but you get the sense that Meg is in a relationship where they are trying to like pretend it's not happening. Yeah. And pretend that they're not afraid. They're going to get married. She's with this guy and they're like, yeah, we're going to plan our wedding. And she just doesn't. She's like, why would we plan a wedding? Like, what is a wedding even? Yeah. What's the part that's exciting about that? And yeah. it's just a matter of time before she's like, yeah, I guess I guess I just should join this, this group. They've been recruiting mm-hmm. me and they really want me here. They follow me everywhere I go. She yells and screams at them. And then like literally a day later goes, well. What am I going to do? Get married? No, screw that. I'd, I'd rather be part of a group that's thinking about this than pretend to it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the two. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. The two main faces of the remnant that we see in this episode are Patty and Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, Patty, who doesn't get to speak until uh, the very end of the episode, and Lori, who still has not spoken, um, just as like these conduits for people to come into the show from, um, yeah. I think is really great. Yeah, I I like what you said about um, emphasizing the change that was made between the book and the show of like who the guilty remnant are or what they believe in because they would be way less interesting to me if they were just like a a Christian cult or something like that. Yeah. Like that's not we've just seen that so many times, and this feels a lot closer to what would actually take place, which is not the sort of like exaggerated. I mean, people are going to get more religious after a moment like this, but also people are going to get more nihilistic. And that to me is a lot more compelling and also sort of speaks to why everybody is so angry at them and frightened about them, even though they don't say anything. Um, and that was really interesting to witness that it's like, stop following us around. Why are you here? Go away. It's this physical embodiment of people just wanting to shun and deny mortality and mm-hmm. like the reality of, of what happened. And that was fascinating to see just how much like conflict and violence comes out of this very simple thing of, I don't want to think about this. I'm trying to make you think about this. No, 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 no. Now we're going to fight. You have to think about this. Yeah. Right. It's it's the people who, you know, online and in, in, in our real lives every day who say, like, we can't forget the numbers. Like, the pandemic numbers are still rising. The, the, it hasn't slowed down. It hasn't stopped. I know it's easier to say, like, okay, everything's fine now. But, like, what if it happens again? Yeah. What if, uh, you know, how much do we not realize, like, this pilot really doesn't explore the weight of 2% of the population. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's the emotional weight of it, and it focuses on who survived. But, like, I don't know, the, the one hint at it is there's a TV broadcast at the end when Kevin's watching at the bar that shows the celebrities that got taken. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I thought it's so funny that the last one it shows is the Pope, and there's a guy in the bar who goes, okay, the Pope I get. But uh, Gary Busey, like, why? And it <laughs> it truly puts right in front of your face, like things like a pand- things like a, vi- a deadly virus, things like a a, a rapturous event, are uh-huh. not actually choosy. 
Uh, they're not yeah. selective, or but are they? You right. know, right? Because in our day to day life, we worry so much about like why and and survivor's guilt, right? Like why did mm-hmm. we make it? Jill is character who feels like. I'm just trying to be a teen girl and I, I had a family and everything was normal. Like everything fell apart around me separate from what I did. I didn't even do anything about it and it all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, how is that fair? How am I supposed to just continue being a teenage girl? Uh, right. So, you know, it's a lot of that too, which I, I find yeah. so interesting. And, and, and speaking back to the, to the remnant, like that scene in at the, uh, at the, the big like fair or whatever, the parade yeah. um, that turns violent so quickly Definitely felt like, you know, protests, yeah. uh, either yep. racial violence protests yep. or like anti-COVID restriction protests where yep. people just, yeah, yeah people don't want to talk about this. They are, they, they come with aggression. Um, you right. know, the remnant just comes there to, to, to hold up a sign and people don't yell at them and then immediately throw down hands, like not even questioning it. Cause they're like, no, I don't even want to hear about this. Right. It really, it really makes you. I think it really clarified for me what some of the animating forces were behind behind the violence that we saw, especially in 2020, um, which is what you're saying of like people don't want to be made to think about things that make them uncomfortable or make them feel guilty and like disagreements over systemic injustice and racism disagreements over like you should make sure to be mindful of covid or whatever it all boils down to that fundamental thing of uh and i don't know a lot about the guilty remnant so i'm hesitant to like fully place them on that the side of like you know uh black lives matter protesters or whatever yeah, right, I, it right. seems like there's something going on with the guilty remnant that i would not be supportive of um but it's that fundamental notion of look at this i don't want to and that can like escalate and become violent so quickly um and makes it all the more wild to me that this is a show that premiered in 2014 and it feels extremely relevant to 2020 2021 2022 it feels like a show that's about uh us it's about our the time we're living in right now yeah i i was really surprised to look up and not realize that there are like leftovers podcasts that started during the pandemic mm-hmm. um i mean the show did pretty well it got three seasons it, it almost didn't get its third season they took a year off and then finished in 2017 um people like it a lot tv critics love it uh i was recently reminded about it and i think this might have been the impetus for us adding it to our pilot list but um too long didn't watch uh the alan Stephen's uh, podcast yeah. where he talks with celebrities they did an episode on the, Le- the leftovers where he talked about the first episode and the finale i'll mention now i completely forget every single thing he said about the finale like okay yeah full full swing because I knew I wanted to finish it someday. So I was like, I'm going to listen to this and not retain any of it. Um, and so it's like been in my head, but nobody's really talking about that. Yeah, this is way better than like if they made the stand today, like when they did the stand reboot or the remake. Yeah, It's like, okay, yeah, deadly virus. We're living through a deadly virus. Like, sure. But like we are dealing with a sudden disappearance that forces us to confront our humanity and how we process grief suddenly. That's the COVID storyline that I didn't realize I needed this badly. 
Right. And that's like the late stage COVID storyline, right? Exactly. That's not even the, yeah, right. It's not the like, the virus is fake and people don't want to wear masks. It's like, now we're trying to get used to it. And that's the sad thing that we're in right now. Like we're done with the year where every single story was a time loop story, uh, (laughs) where every movie and every game was a time loop. And now it's like, okay, we're going to look at and think about and tell the stories of like living in the wake of something and, and what that means. Um, so I was honestly just like thankful (laughs) for this show existing and being about that so that I could have this prism through which to, to think about those things. Do you want to hear a fun piece of trivia about the deer? I do. Is it CG? Uh, I think it is, but that's not the the fun fact. The deer was inspired by an experience that Damon Lindelof had when he was walking on the street with his son in a baby Bjorn. And he saw a deer in the middle of the street staring at him. After a moment of fear uh, where he felt that the deer was not supposed to be there, he realized that in actuality, humanity was not supposed to be there. Damn. <laughs> Brutal. Damn. Yeah, Damon Lindelof's a bit of a cornball, but I like his work a lot. I respect his work a lot. Um, I think he brought a lot to the uh, the Watchmen HBO series. And I think he brought a lot to Lost, warts and all. But, um, yeah, they just have, like, a really specific way of talking about stuff and thinking about stuff. And I got to tell you, like, you you may think, okay, this pilot, like, gave me what I need of, like, people coping. But we there is so much. There is stuff in, like, season two that if I told you, you would not believe me. Awesome. Uh, the show, <laughs> that's, like, that's cool. it takes this premise in ma- in incredible directions uh and builds on things in like not a lot of episodes either um i believe the total is something like 28 episodes um yeah 28 yep seasons one and two are 10 episodes season three is eight episodes um so that brings to me to my next big question well actually no before we talk about the overall show are there let's talk about some moments in this one that were kind of fun or interesting um yeah, I, I want to talk a little more about Jill's storyline just because right. <laughs> I <laughs> I think it's it's this really interesting reflection on like what does it mean to be a kid growing up in a nihilistic world, which the reason that I was saying that I can sympathize but not empathize as easily is because when I see Jill's storyline, like I see my students growing up amidst covid and like what does it mean to have this sort of formative time of your life completely characterized by this feeling of fuck this or like uh you know everything can be taken from us in in a moment or i don't know just seeing that and seeing the like the way that teenageness persists through it but also there's this kind of edge to it or darkness and there's also a gallows humor component like that, that scene, one of my favorite scenes of the episode is when they're in the, in homeroom and in the school and the morning announcements say the pledge of allegiance and nobody moves or does the pledge. And then they're like, and now it's time to pray. And nearly every student gets down to pray and the teacher is like, okay, sure, I guess I'll do it too. And then uh, Jill's like making hand signals back and forth with this cute boy who motions shooting himself in the head. And then she does this really overwrought, 
miming of hanging herself. Incredible. Incredibly well done. It's really funny. Um, And he kind of looks at her like, that was a lot. (laughs) He kind of like balks at it and then her friend is like, laughs at her. Yeah. That scene like has everything to me because it it's about like we don't have any faith in like earthly institutions anymore or think that they matter many of us want to believe that there's some like god or something but we're kind of going through the motions of it we're still trying to be teens and flirt and joke around and we're still getting embarrassed doing it um it's all it's all there in in that scene and i thought it was great it's truly beautiful um yeah. and like manages to have lightness to it i think that's where uh-huh. like i can recommend the leftovers to more people than you'd think is it's not just the saddest show you'll ever watch it is and also people realize how hilarious that can be sometimes yeah yeah um we can talk about with a part where it becomes the tv show euphoria for a couple minutes <laughs> right right i've never that seen was... euphoria but i know that the show infamously has really like ridiculous parties with drug use and whatnot and it yeah, turns out silly after the event people tend to just have parties like that that's what a party is now is we're doing mm-hmm. like injecting drugs and playing the worst ever spin the bottle game yeah somebody made this nihilistic spin the bottle app where it's like burn this person choke them fuck and it's like (laughs) it feels fake it feels like a joke but again it's just like it's what teens always want to do and what what young people always want is to feel something and so they're like all right we got we we've run out of like boring ways to feel something we don't care anymore uh the our like mortality has been placed in front of us all that's left is like let's just escalate 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 and so jill gets with this guy max and they get she's instructed by the app to choke him and they go into the bedroom and they uh strip down to their underwear and then they just kind of have they briefly just have a conversation (laughs) Hmm. um it gets kind of gross when he's like can i you know can i jerk jerk off and you're like oh this is gross and the show the show manages to like not dwell there too long um i think the the leftover is definitely like portrayed it's an hbo show so there's like some sex stuff yeah but nothing much more explicit than this i feel weird about it and then her and her two like twin gay guy friends are like burying a dog and this is like the checkpoint to enjoy the leftovers it's like do you find it entertaining watching people like bury a dead animal and choking people at a party and leaving their husband for a cult if you can just like cross that hump, then this is the show for you because yeah. it doesn't get much more hard to suspend disbelief than that, I think. Mm. But it's a weird show. Um, and I thought, yeah, the teen party stuff was the height of like, oh, this is too silly. This might be a little bit too silly. Or if you really dig into like, how do the guilty remnant like do shopping? What if somebody like refuses to buy them stuff? Do they have to farm their own stuff? Like, how do you have a group of people who can literally never talk? Uh-huh. and i'm sure some of them talk and as we see like um patty speaks to meg briefly when she comes in so they all can talk they just choose not to which i think is also a fun detail right um but yeah it's a it's a really big one october 14th 2011 was the day known as uh i just had the title of it whatever the sudden departure that's what they call it in the show um so, yeah, we have everybody kind of going on their journey. 
and we have the shot that was in the ads a lot, which is Tom screaming under in in a pool. It was I think that was like I read that that was improvised by the actor, uh, like him screaming in the underwater. Oh, really? Yeah, and they were like use that in all the ads. That looks really cool. Hmm. And also the choice at the in the um when the guilty remnant show up to use the song retrograde by James Blake, uh-huh. really evocative. Yeah, um, it's great. Song this, this show is full of stuff like that, uh-huh. like just song choices that'll blow your mind. Um, Sh- should we talk about if we want to cover it, or did you have other assorted thoughts? Um, assorted or sorted? Assorted, <laughs> sorted. <laughs> isn't sorted like naughty yeah yeah i have naughty thoughts which is that um even though he's a cop kevin's really hot he's really hot yeah it's a problem which is when he had those sunglasses on that was a problem for me yeah that was a problem i was having trouble with that i said mom come pick me up (laughs) um yeah three seasons 28 episodes modern television show it's all on hbo i hmm I want to watch The Leftovers all the way through. I would yeah. like to finish this show. I think we should wait to hear what people think about the prospect of us covering it. Hmm. Why is that? Because I want to watch it like now. <laughs> <laughs> but I could also watch it week to week. It absolutely has the occasionally busted stuff that we love to talk about. We were like, what the hell? The Leftovers this is a dumb show. It is amazing when it tries to be amazing. Uh, you know, it's got trivia. It's got actors we like. It's got a tight, you know, tw- the amount of episodes. It it does actually check all the boxes of a show that we should cover. It's somewhat cult. It's literally about cults. Um, <laughs> and thank you. And people aren't talking about it as much as they should be, TBH. So what, what what's I'm, what's causing you to want to wait to see what people say? Uh because I want to watch it myself. So if people are like, "Eh," then I can be like, "Okay, great, I'll watch it myself." But if people are like, "Oh yeah, you should," then I'll we should cover it. I see. I see. What do you think? I'd love to cover it. I think it would I I think it would be great. Okay. Um we already have some ideas for the next season or two, but I think we should add it in that case to the next season not to add to the next season you know i like the season after we have we have something in mind for season 13 that's not gonna take very long yeah and then 14 i am entertaining the thought but i i'm also willing to wait longer i just think what the value to me of watching it is like watching it now at this point in the pandemic when it like is resonant with the experience that we're having, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, maybe the pandemic won't go away anytime soon. And, oh. uh, <laughs> it'll stay relevant. I, I mean, my argument just being it's too good for the show is not a good argument. Like I, that I just, <laughs> I mean, not like it's too good quality stuff. Like you, you saw stuff that was silly, right? Sorry. I didn't mean it's too good quality, but I mean like I want to watch it so badly that I want to watch like five episodes tonight. Right. But that's not I can I can bite my tongue a little bit. And like this is a show I've always wanted to deep dive too. Like there's just so much. There's so much I can't even explain. Mm-hmm. 
And I've only seen two seasons of it. And I've heard the third season is a hundred times more wild. So I think I think you've convinced me. I think this might be a show that gets covered. I think the only I had the feeling watching it that I have when it's like we should cover this. Yeah. Some sometimes I don't have that feeling and then I arrive at it later with a show. And sometimes I'm watching and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do yeah. this. Um I think what would deter me if people were like, no, 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 don't, (laughs) we don't want this, do not do it. But if the response is people being like, yeah, okay, sure, then I'm, I'm enthusiastically wanting to watch it. Mm. There is a lot of value in us watching something that we're like, this is really good, we'd like to cover it. And then people say like, I wanted an excuse to watch this. Yeah. And this is a great example of that. I want people to watch this show. It's so, it matters a lot to me. It's one of my favorite shows. It's in my like pantheon of favorite shows for sure. Mm. I don't know where it stands exactly, but it's definitely up there. And you haven't uh, finished it, which I think is also I a sell. I haven't finished it. Do you know I what happens? I literally know of a scene that has nothing to do with anything. Gotcha. It's like a setting. That's all. But like. God, within those first two seasons, oh my God, so much, so much, dude. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's got enough to cover. I think we could crunch into some leftovers. Oh, mm. what would we call our chats? Then they'd be like leftover leftovers, or like one day <laughs> later's. <laughs> sure, that's fun. All right, I'm into it. Yeah, the leftovers. That was easy. Hit the staples yeah. button that says that was easy. Sorry, I didn't mean to sound waffly when I was like, I don't know if I want to cover it. It's just, it's really freaking good. And I'm like, I'm an impatient child sometimes. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's fair, but I also think like that that sounds like a reason to cover it yeah. as opposed to a reason not to, right? Yeah. Like I'm bursting with excitement to watch this show and I want to watch all of it right now. Uh-huh. It sounds like we should cover the show. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's like how we watch Twin Peaks and every week I'm like, I want to watch the next one. Like, that's yes, good. I, that's I was going to say, that's how I feel about Twin Peaks to return. Like, if I could have lived my own life the way I wanted to, I I would have watched all of it months ago. Yeah. Okay. The book, I believe, ends around where season one ends, if I'm not completely mistaken. So they got two seasons of original television out of it. Out of the book? Yeah. And then they just wrote a third season? No, no, sorry. They they the only the first season is the book. After that seasons 2 and 3 are original. Oh, I understand. I worded I worded that really poorly, but yes. 2 and 3 are are originals. Fascinating. 2 is wild. The premise the basic thing that happened. sorry. Oh, it won't be annoying. <laughs> The Leftovers. It's a show about surviving. Great. I think it survives our vetting process. Stamp! To become a future chat show, for sure. Yeah. We're not sure when, but we can sort that out. Yeah. As we do more pilots and stuff. Yeah. And it's not that long. 14-episode, or if if we want to do season recaps, or just what we could figure that out, but somewhere between 14 and a little bit more episodes... It's not too much. That's between three and four months. Oh, dude. 
Yeah. That's so fast and good. All right. You, you, you sold me on that. Also, they're not all this long. This right. one's long. Yeah, that would be a problem if they were all this long, but they're not. Let us know what you think of The Leftovers. We're curious. Uh, I think what we want to know is have you – would you be excited by the concept of us covering it? And have you seen it or not? And would us covering it make you watch it for the first time? Just like what what are your thoughts on it? Because mm-hmm. I'm certainly really excited about doing it. I want an excuse to watch it um, and to dive deeply into it. I found value in watching it in the time that we're living in. But if there's people who are like, nah, I've seen it before. I don't really want to watch it again. Please don't cover it. Then obviously we won't do it. Yeah. So let us know. I just don't think those people exist. <laughs> I don't think this show did that <laughs> well. It's one of those, like, if you liked Prestige TV in the 2010s, you watched it, maybe. But right. otherwise, you're like, oh, I heard that was good. I never watched it. And that's, there we go. There's that sweet, delicious niche I'm looking for. Yummy. Yummy. Hey folks, welcome back to the present. We are here talking about our updated opinions on Leftovers Pilot, Season 1, Episode 1. Um, and now we're, we've rewatched it. And for me, I think this is like my third or fourth time. So I have this pilot basically committed to memory at this point. I'm Alan and that's Magellan still. Hi, Magellan. Hey, now it's we're a little older and a little wiser. And a little, Just... a little cuter. Oh. There's that because you know Jack Harlow on industry on industry baby. baby, yeah. Yeah, I immediately knew what you were going for. <laughs> Still getting cute, yeah. Yep, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. I really just wanted to use this opportunity to shout out a couple of small details, plot things, uh, thematic stuff that we liked in the pilot that we didn't get a chance to talk about in that pilot chance discussion that y'all just heard. Um, and so I'm just going to go down some notes. I want to ask you, Magellan, was there any big things that stood out to you in the rewatch that you were like, huh, this is interesting. I didn't think about this the first time. There were a couple, there were like three kind of thematic things. Uh, they're kind of discussion points. So I don't know yeah, we how we want to go about that. Mm-hmm. Let's Let's just hit those in order because a lot of my stuff is just like, I noticed this thing in the background. I noticed this thing in the background. I liked this music cue and stuff like that. So if you want to gotcha. like go down those three, I'm into it. Um, there was a line that, or an exchange of lines that really stuck out to me this time around, which is when Tom is bringing the senator to see Wayne. And he has that line where he says, you know, you don't need to feel so burdened. And that really st- strikes the senator. He seems very affected by it. And he says, is that what you say to everybody that you drive there? And he says, no, sometimes I say abandoned. And uh, I just thought that was an interesting framework through which to look at all of the characters in this show as like, okay, is this person feeling burdened or abandoned or both? And it feels like you can kind of trace everybody's 
struggles and the things that they're trying to figure out down to those those two things i think and whatever that burden is like the burden of guilt which the guilty remnant kind of voluntarily take on or stare in the face of the burden of like having to figure out what to do with your loved one's stuff or how do you live a life without this person or feeling burdened by the fact that maybe you didn't like them very much and now you have to pretend like they were special and then of course the abandonment stuff kevin we sort of figure out he's someone who seems burdened but really feels abandoned by his wife and that's like what we realize about him by the end of the episode so i don't know i just thought that that was like an interesting pair of feelings to look at people through because the show is exploring what's that word when you're trying to grief uh it's exploring it's exploring grief in a way that's a lot more nuanced and honest i think than we see in other places where it's sort of allowing grief to to include negative feelings or like kind of ugly feelings or things that we don't really want to share or show to people right right um things that we don't understand even or don't know how to name but i think feeling burdened and feeling abandoned are represent that sort of wider spectrum of of grief that the show's trying to explore yeah and exploring it through the different members of the garvey family i think specifically has yeah. been like really exciting really interesting to me that moment that i didn't even pick up on like the parallels in this pilot was uh kevin smashing the the portrait of uh his family with his wife like the specifically the part with his wife in it and mm-hmm. then at the end of the episode jill like pulls the glass out because mm-hmm. she needs that she needs a sense of normalcy and we'll talk about kevin coming back and now it's his turn to seek his turn to seek a return to something that feels normal and graspable but mm-hmm. in this pilot especially he is like you know, I talked about this in the podcast, but like he's a he's a police officer. He wants order, and yet all of his discussions with Lucy are about how like there isn't order anymore. The <laughs> thing that like police are used for and sheriffs and whatnot is just not it's not tenable anymore. And yeah. something very hopeless but beautiful about that, um, I find like really compelling. And I'm also like coming to like enjoy uh, Jill's plot a lot more as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's getting a little bit silly. Um, minor detail that I liked from the party scene was just, but when the music choice when they first pan into it is goofy. Um, we did mention the spinning the bottle app thing being stupid, but also like mm-hmm. when they go in, it's a Wiley Coyote cartoon uh, that's playing in the background, <laughs> yeah. and there's a guy staring at it like, oh jeez, he's like stressed I like that out. Part. Yeah, that's the detail I- you put in when you're like, this is not a party you need to take seriously. This is like ridiculous. Yeah. I didn't realize my first time watching that the guy that Amy that lands on Amy and it says fuck that was the guy that Jill was interested in. Yes, the guy whose party it is. Yeah, I didn't re- I didn't see that the first time. So there's, and you know, some tension between the friends there. Big time. And when uh Jill goes to the ba- to the bedroom to do choke with the other guy, he mentions that it's the host's sister who was also like uh whisked away. So mm-hmm. he's like, Oh, did you know this did she leave like on purpose or whatever? And it's like they are it like it's even weirder. It makes Jill's reaction there make even more sense that she's in the bed of a young child who was taken away. 
And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know how to feel right now. How would I ever feel a sort of like sexual attraction to anyone at this moment? This doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, and also like, they don't really linger on it, but it's that guy that she choked out is like unconscious. Um, he could very well be dead. And that could be a plot point that comes up later. I don't even remember, but I just thought it was funny that they were like, okay, she choked him out and we're going to move past that. She choked him to unconsciousness. He says he's going to masturbate and then she chokes him. And then we cut to her leaving the room and he in the, he's in the background, like clearly unconscious. Yes. Maybe he's just sleeping. <laughs> it's no, no, I know that. I know. I, I don't, I, I just think that there's a little bit of ambiguity there that I thought was fun. Um, but I'm already starting to doubt myself, so I'm going to move past that. We got a couple of just like quick flashbacks that uh, to people's pasts that you don't think of the first time you watch this. Like Lori mm. having flashbacks to other girls fighting with other girls when she was in school. Mm. Um, we get some stuff where like Kevin sees a man like running naked through the streets and you're like, who is that? We get a little bit more of that in episode two. Um, I really, really liked, yeah, you were talking about like how, um, Tom thinks about Wayne and so a line that like struck me was, uh, somebody asks him like, Oh, do you like the Senator asks him like, Hey, does this guy actually work? Does do his hugs actually work? Is he real? And he says, he's as real as it gets, which is like not the straightest answer you could have given. Right. It's not like I believe in everything about him. It's like, well, this is what real means now is we all believe in a guy who hugs people and takes away their pain. I guess that's real. It's like kind of a waffly answer, which makes it a little bit of his like hesitation episode two make more sense. Um, I really liked that. That was a very deliberate line choice, I think, to be like, huh. So kind of weird there. Right. Um, how how real does it get? Exactly. What is what is yeah. also what does real mean? Like, hmm. um, and then just, yeah, like little things here. Tommy reading The Stranger, always great. Uh, the anxiety of hit when, when they're like, Wayne is going to come to you. You just have to stay the night and you're going to wake up at some point and Wayne's going to be there. Like mm-hmm. super unsettling, turning like Wayne into this really creepy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, not to blow too far past um, Tom reading The Stranger. Have you read The Stranger? I, I read it in high school, yeah. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. What class did you read that for? I forgot I we went to high school together. <laughs> No, I didn't. Uh, some English class. I definitely read it. Huh. It's very nihilistic. Um, and he like kills somebody, and then he's like, "I don't think I feel bad about it." Yeah, basically, towards at the very beginning of the book, his his mother dies, yeah. and he doesn't know how to process grief, that grief or feel about it. And then he shoots somebody, and then the rest of the book, he's like. I don't know, man. (laughs) I'm not sure why I did it. That's really on the nose for Tom. Yeah, almost like distractingly on the nose (laughs) if you've read the book, I think. Because that's like, you know, multiple characters do that. I mean, that's what Kevin does too is he shoots dogs and then he's like, "Eh, I don't know. Yes, it's bad maybe. Or the people punching each other in the – at the parade and stuff. There's a lot of characters who do the sorts of things that the protagonist of the stranger does. Um, But yeah, it's a little silly for the show to be like, look, the stranger. Okay. Anyway, he he shoots a guy. He doesn't care about it. Also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Quick hits here. Uh, Lives live Tyler. I keep forgetting her character's name. Meg, Meg's fiance singing, literally singing the song. Let's stay together by Al Green when he's in the car. That's two on the nose. Actually. I didn't realize what song it was the first time, but like, they are not going to, their marriage is not going to last very long. 
And some writer was like, yeah, let's have them sing Let's Stay Together. This like romantic kind of sexy, funny song. Mm. Uh, it was uh, it was kind of fun. It was like so on the nose that it felt like that would really happen in the way that sometimes people are very artlessly on the nose yeah, with, pe- with people. Yes. Um, like when the song's like, some people break up and then he looks at her like, oh. Oh, this oh. is going to be oh. this song being on is going to be awkward. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, um, they're when they're burying the dog after the party, they pan over to a bunch of Muslim women sitting on the porch, um, wearing hijabs, just like staring at them. Hmm. Really brief shot, really weird. I think faith is going to come up every single episode of this show. Huh. Um, of course, related to that, the comparison between humans and dogs, who dogs immediately accepted that things are chaotic. Humans refuse to accept it and want answers more than anything else, which is mm. what the Leftovers fandom is and also what every character on the Leftovers is. <laughs> so I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Corinthians passage that plays in Kevin's dream on the radio that the caller talks about, he's like, oh, Corinthians 8. It's the one about the resurrection of Christ. So again, religion, rapture, resurrection, it's all there. And my last note, just funny one. When they're at the parade at the end of the episode and right before, like, the fighting happens, Mayor Lucy sees a, a clown and they're like, oh, we, like, why is there a fucking clown here? And they're like, I don't know. We invite the clown to every parade. And she's like, not for this one, dude. Not for this one. <laughs> Super funny. Pretty funny, um, yeah. Because there is, like, value in having, like, not levity, but, like, I'm sure the kids could use a distraction. Maybe. they mm-hmm. Some of them need to be distracted. That's, like, what this is about. Um, but I just liked that a lot and I thought it was cute. Yeah. And then last one was, uh, uh, sorry, real last one. The, the woman at the very beginning, um, who loses her child, Sammy in the, in the past before we jump three years forward, uh, is seen twice again in the episode one. I believe she's the one who breaks glass against a guilty remnant member's face. Um, I'm like almost certain that's the same extra. And then she is also in the bar when Kevin runs outside to meet the man with the, the, who's shooting dogs. Um, oh, that's who he meets in the bar. Yeah, which because she says like I was at the laundromat, and that's where exactly where she was. Oh, I wow, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I don't think I noticed that the first time, like very first time, until someone mentioned it. But yeah, that's that's her again. So I don't know how often she comes back, but she's back in the pilot, which I thought was cool, like cir- hmm. cir- circular. That's those are my details, though. Any final thoughts on the pilot before we get into new content and we talk about the second episode? Yeah, I had two things I wanted to point out i I also wanted to talk about that opening sequence with the woman at the laundromat just to say that um it says a lot about the tone of the show and how it's going to move forward i think it's such a great first scene because it says like hey it's not like the world was great or something before this disappearance happened like people were living normal shitty days and then suddenly something absolutely unthinkable took place and now what do we do um and it it just says a lot about like how the show centers things in people and like how they move through the world and survive um which i thought was was cool and then i was really preoccupied this time around with the weird statue that they unveil at the parade yeah, with the, the woman, woman and the, the floating screen. baby mm. and everyone just kind of looks at it and has a moment of what <laughs> what are we trying to communicate with this statue um 
which I, I don't know. I just thought that was so fascinating because it's exactly the type of, uh, like tonally inappropriate, <laughs> you're going for something there, but it just is making us all feel weird kind of thing. Lucy says before, she's like, do we really have to bring the statue out? And they're like, we had a guy make it. It's covered. We can't just leave it covered. They're like, okay, I guess we can uncover it. And they <laughs> do. And exactly like you said, it's this moment of like, uh, mm, that's not, ooh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like you had a sign that said like, sorry for your loss. And it's like, dog, no, it's been three years. Like we're not <laughs> in the conversation I want to have. Um, yeah. And the religious imagery and the like, um, what's the thing on the, the ceiling of the uh, Sistine Chapel? It's also evoking that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's all there. Uh, I think just like as I mentioned in the pilot chat, something to keep in mind with the leftovers is it's not always a subtle show. It's mostly a very subtle and nuanced show, and at the end of the day, it loops around to that. But occasionally, they have to be like, "Hey, listen, people are corny sometimes. People make dumb statues that feel inappropriate. Um, sometimes a bagel is just a bagel, stuff like that." Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I. I, I appreciate you mentioning that because we didn't we didn't say it the first time. Mm-hmm. Is that what we got? Yep. Groovy. Let's pump the gas, folks. Do you pump the gas or do you only pump the brakes? I feel like you should just hit the gas. Yeah, the I gas wouldn't would pump, like, pump the gas. That makes that the car go. Yeah, you don't want to flood your engine. Let's let's hit the gas, and we'll be right back to talk about the leftovers, season one, episode two, penguin one, us. Zero. Welcome back to the Chatsovers, folks. I'm still Alan, and I am still joined by a man who brought all of his professional clown gear to the worst possible event for the occasion. It's Magellan. Hong Kong. <laughs> Hong Quack. Kong, your, fam- your family's dead. Oh. <laughs> I'm, like, crying. You shoot the squirt, like, flower at my face. Weeping. Yeah. You got big shoes. You jump into a car. Like... <laughs> So we're back. We're talking about Penguin 1 Us 0, which is the second episode of The Leftovers. This was written by Damon Lindelof and Kath Lingenfelter. It was also directed by Peter Berg, like the pilot, and it aired July 6, 2014. Magellan, can you do me a favor and tell me what happened in Penguin 1 Us 0? In this episode, in the wake of a series of disturbing encounters, Kevin pays a visit to a therapist. Tom finds himself in a precarious situation with Christine, a favorite of Wayne's. Ew. A frustrated Meg is asked to part with pieces of her past. Jill and Amy tail Nora Durst, who became a local celebrity when her entire family disappeared in the departure. John, what did you think about Penguin 1 Us Zero, bud? I want to know. I thought it was good. I mean, I like The Leftovers. It's a good show. It's very engaging. I think there are some really brilliant ways that the show is taking its premise and building on it and uh reflecting on grief in ways that aren't just characters talking but there're also some kind of interesting symbols or visual moments this episode also like introduced a surprising amount of new stuff i felt like yes. um yep. which is 
I, I feel sort of neutral about right now. I'm kind of curious where it goes. Um, but I didn't expect to like learn more stuff about Kevin in the way that we did or for the Wayne stuff to take the turn that it's taking right now. Um, so the show like kind of surprised me in the ways that it isn't really as like patient or grounded as I was expecting it to be, um, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, I think it's still a pretty good show, but it's just sli- a slightly different show than I think the pilot sold me on. Yeah, I, it's it's the challenge with with having such a strong pilot is that you it's often very very difficult to match that quality for an entire series. I think it's it's like one in a million when shows can do that. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think that this episode is bad. Um, I think it's quite good, actually. But it has the difficult task of saying, okay, here's all this cool, evocative, moody stuff from the pilot. Now we have to tell a story with, like, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and some mysteries, and some characters. And we don't even have all the characters yet. We still don't as of episode two. So, like, we're building a house. And it starts with a foundation, and some of it, I feel like, is kind of, like, rushing to get us places that we're not like into just yet um but i'm excited to see where it plays out um so as opposed to our usual chats format we're going to be going back to our old old chats format of going character or plot by plot instead of like scene by scene um because i i think that the leftovers just benefits and is very much a like in this character's plot this happens kind of show um so let's talk about the raid that opens this episode uh the the raid on Wayne, Holy Wayne's compound and the really awkward police or detective scene where they just give you the exposition dump that you truly thought would have taken at least a season to deal mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, here's yeah. two detectives. Holy Wayne, he is a charlatan. You know how I said in the pilot, like, he might be a charlatan. He is. Um, or at least, uh-huh. to be clear, the as the detectives understand it, he is. They have no evidence that any of the stuff he does works. So to them, it's just, he is a man who is a predator who keeps a cadre, a harem, if you will, of young, specifically Asian girls that he um, mm-hmm. sexually assaults. And that's mm-hmm. like what he does. And he's a bad person. And we're going to send the FBI after him. What proceeds yeah. is a like staggeringly violent, very intense, not okay for TV, I guess, like yeah. just very violent um, FBI raid on the compound at night, which, mm-hmm. I mean, how did you feel about this? This was a lot to come right up front. Yeah. Yeah, it was intense. I mean, I think it's meant to be that way. It has to be that way in order for us to be comfortable with the action that Tom takes, which is killing one of the guys raiding the place. We sort of, as an audience, I think, need to see that guy, you know, call Christine the C word and say, I'm going to fucking kill you and all that stuff in order for tom to shoot him and for us to still feel like okay tom was justified like was maybe justified or at least i'm not like passing judgment on tom but also now i know he is like in the shit and even if he has misgivings about wayne which he clearly does he's stuck in wayne's wayne's world Take the whole episode again. Hello and welcome. To- no, I'm just kidding. We got there. Party on. He's stuck in Wayne's world. Um, yeah. And uh, and he's going to have to deal with that. So, I don't know. I was kind of curious to... I thought there were going to be other characters who are kind of like the Wayne squad. 
Um, but we really only met like that one lady that we see later in the episode. And I thought, I thought Wayne was going to have like a whole cult thing, but I guess we can't have like two cults in the same show. Uh, so I don't know the, the plot kind of is doing stuff that I, I wasn't really curious for it to do. And it's kind of turning Wayne into this, like this fucking like creepy. I don't, it's just like a lot, but I think this scene serves its purpose, which is to tell us Tom is in big trouble. He made a choice that like we can say how we feel about it, but we're not damning him as a result of that choice. But he may be damned just because of the, its consequences. Yeah. And I think um, one of the people who worked on The Leftover is Patrick Somerville. He's also the showrunner on Station Eleven, which is a show that has cults as well. And the reason I mentioned that, it was on a recent episode that I listened to of the Station Eleven podcast, um, they were talking about two different cults on that show. And what he was saying was like, you know, when you're like a traveling group of actors, you're like, oh, we're all like really queer and we love each other and really friendly. But when you're a cult and you, you know, worship a man and it's like weird and there's like sex stuff and there's an, a, like a power dynamic, that feels inappropriate. That feels like something where the FBI might be justified. But at the end of the day, those are to the people in them those are the same thing like wayne's cult feels comforting and like has answers for the people in his cult because he you know like so many like abusive cult leaders just hides all of the stuff that he does um or says it's justified because of xyz so like i think the only moment where i felt like i understand the people who are in wayne's cult was when christine sees him jump out of the back of the trunk um because her and tom like go to a gas station and uh they wait there for a while and then wayne pops out of the back of a trunk and she like leaps up and hugs him and at first you're like this doesn't make sense but uh later she has like she's talking to tom in the car uh and she's like uh everything's gonna be okay and he's like why do you know that and she's like because wayne said it is and so for these people this is their religion right like i try not to cast judgment in my life i think it's they're obviously being played for fools here uh, but at the same time, like we believe what we can, we believe what's presented to us, right? Uh, I mean, Wayne has like groomed her, yeah. You know, yes. like it's not just a religion; it's not just like his her faith. It's like fucking Stockholm syndrome and like sexual and mental abuse. I don't know, it, which I think the show's portraying very yes. well. Um. And when that moment happened and she said that to Tom, I was like, fuck, man, <laughs> you are in a bad, in bad situation. I'm sorry. Yeah. Drink the Kool-Aid um, literally about a cult, by the way. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, it was interesting in that first for like you were saying, as as sort of clunky and expositional as that first scene was with the detectives, it was interesting to hear them talk about the group of guys that Tom is a part of in the kind of general yeah. sense where they say like, yeah, he's got all these cur- couriers running for him who are really just these like sad, horny young guys who College just want to get laid, uh, which is, that's who, that's exactly who Tom is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think that does a lot to sort of know Tom well uh, in the first episode I feel like, okay, I'm invested in this guy. I want to know more about him. Zoom out and to have these er- other characters kind of dismissively say what we know about him. Um, and then to zoom back in to him and see 
his position for, you know, the for how pathetic it is. And I want to be clear, I don't think that the show is in any way portraying Wayne's group as good. Um, I think it's really sad that Christine is fully bought in. I just think mm-hmm. that in an effort to empathize with the victims of a cult, we have to understand that this is like this just makes sense to them because yeah, like you said, that's how grooming works. That's how cults work. But this right, is also, like right, you said, right. the same show that has the guilty remnant, which I think so far the show has done a very good job of portraying is not necessarily evil. They've done bad things and they've done suspicious things, but we have no mm-hmm. reason to believe that there is explicitly like deep seated corruption in the guilty remnant. Whereas we know right. from immediately episode two, do not trust Wayne's cult. It's bad. I understand people believe it and I get why, but it's bad. And you should feel that. And I think the show would make does a good job of, of delineating those two cults. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, there's a bit of conflict between Tom and Wayne as they uh, like meet up again in this gas station. Is By the way, the dead guy that they find at the gas station, is that the FBI agent that they like brought with them? Or is that just a dead guy in the gas station? Like, what was that guy's deal? Why was he there? Um, I, I don't know. From the way the camera was looking at him... And the fact that Wayne like kisses his corpse later, whatever was happening there. And he says he wouldn't, he would have never let me do that when he was alive. It feels like I'm supposed to recognize that guy, but I didn't recognize him. Me neither. If anybody wants to correct us on that, I'm accepting corrections on this because that just blew past me. But I also don't think it's super important. Um, Like what is important though, is that Tom He's like looking to Wayne for guidance. Like, hey, you told me to take this girl and go somewhere. Where do you want us to go and why? And at first, Wayne is like, you know, hey, you seem really like stressed out. We keep seeing different moments of Kevin trying to call Tom to like find some sense of normalcy. And he's not getting it. What's he going to do? Um, Wayne is like, let me give you the hug. And he like, unbut- he like unbuttons Tom's shirt without asking because he's like, obviously, you want this. And Tom almost does it. And then it's like, mm, I actually don't think I want this right now. And we get this incredible line from the, from Wayne who says, you're all suffering and no salvation. Like, you're the only guy I don't get in the whole world because you, like, want the bad parts, but you don't seem to want the relief from all of this pain and suffering and worry that you're feeling. And I think that's almost like a Garvey family trait as it's portrayed here because all uh-huh. of them in some way yeah. are like, yeah, we're living in the world we live in. We are not, like, seeking a release or an escape we're trying to live in a grounded version of the world and it's not being given to us. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you're all suffering, you know, salvation is a fascinating thing for a like, <laughs> like cult leader to tell you. It's like, I want to give you the good part uh-huh. of being in a cult. You don't want it. And so there's a, dis- there's a dissonance there. And even like between, um, between Tom and, and uh, Christine, when she says like, Oh, Wayne says everything's going to be okay. You get this moment looking at him in the car, like, uh, I can't tell her, but that's BS. <laughs> like, that's really crap. Mm. <laughs> I like the line that goes with that that one just before it when he says, you're the one motherfucker I can't figure out. That's the line. Yeah. The, the guy playing Wayne is so creepy. So when he says that, it's like, oh, leave me alone. He also cracks um, Tom's phone. He's like, give me your phone. And then shatters yeah. it and gives him a stupid smiley face phone, but no charger. No charger. <laughs> He's like, you can just get a charger at a convenience store, but I'd use this phone. I'll call you. It doesn't call yeah. out anywhere else. Yeah. Um, the The thing that interests me right now about Wayne as he fits into the larger world is 
the fact that the guilty remnant are a group of people who basically want to stare in the face the the weight that they're feeling and and yeah. sit with that, live with that, and make that their entire existence. Um, and to see Meg go through the process in this episode of joining the guilty remnant and how like painstaking of a process that is. Yeah. To contrast that with what Wayne does and what they say in the FBI conversation where they're like, yeah, he just like sells hugs to politicians where, you know, what the thing that he's selling is like, you can not think about this stuff anymore. Just come give me a big hug. And the fact that his clients are like people in power, right? Who are saying like, yeah, 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 that's what I want to do. I just want to give this guy a big hug and then not have to think about this thing anymore. It tells you a lot about the world and who is willing to take accountability for things and how we're processing this loss, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Fundamentally, so much of The Leftovers is about faith. I think we can briefly just talk about the intro, which we finally see in episode two, um, which is pulling big from like famous art of like religious imagery and iconography and stuff like that. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. Um, in kind of a ham-fisted way, I, I've said before that the, the leftovers at its worst is like super duper ham-fisted. I really and don't. Li- I think it's stupid. It's to too much. Honest. You think? I don't, I don't like it. I mean, I'm willing to hear people disagree with me, but I think it's dumb. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> I believe it changes season to season. This is definitely not my favorite of them, uh, because it's. I. It's also not a. Evo- it's not evocative, like it's a iconography of people being taken away, and then it zooms out, and it's like a bunch of people being taken away, and it's the same thing as the statue from episode one, where it's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. is that that's what the show is? Is people being taken away from their families? Like, all right, of different types of group of people. Yeah, but I think the difference between the two is the statue is contextualized through the way it's talked about, the way the camera positions it and looks at it. Um, the yeah. that great shot where Nora Durst is at the podium and the statue is out of focus on the other half of the screen. Yeah. That was like one of my favorite shots of the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the statue is contextualized, contextualized as corny as heck. And that's like the function of it in the world, but there's no context for the intro thing here. So the only way I could take it was being a hundred percent sincere, which just felt, I mean, obviously this is a very serious show about very serious things. And yet that felt so self-serious that Mm -hmm. I was like, come on, you're doing like a, like a ceiling thing, rotunda painting thing. It's it's a bit much. Um, let's talk briefly about the guilty remnant, though. Um, speaking of cults and speaking of Meg, sure. Um, sure. We get some brief stuff about like Meg's husband investigating. Like, hey, I didn't know my wife was gone, and then like Kevin's investigating, <laughs> and he goes to the compound. And the one like lore nugget we get out of this really, well, two things. One is that we learn that the guilty remnant has sort of tiers of membership. So she's in what's like the tier one. That's basically you the can pledge still- house is what it's called. That's the term, the pledge house, where they have a guy who goes out and shops for them. He's like the designated guy. I love the part where Kevin is going to interrogate her and he sees that guy and he's like, hey, just want you to know that the missing persons case for you is closed. And he's like, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. It's been Your family has time. stopped looking for you, just so you know. Yeah, pretty, pretty sad. Yeah. Um, but in this part, they can still talk and she's being trained by Lori. 
who is like trying to teach her sort of like a like karate kid thing like you need to learn to sacrifice <laughs> and learn patience so uh the way she does that is twofold one she makes her every day give up something from her luggage uh to permanently give away um mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to bother her until the last thing she gives away which is an object of her mom's and then the other one is that she has her cut down a tree with an axe, mm -hmm. which uh, it looks hard. It looks really hard to cut down. I've never even yeah. thought of cutting down a tree with an axe. I wrote the same thing in my notes. I've never considered how hard it must be to cut down a tree. And you just can't. If you're a normal person, you're not doing that in one sitting either. It's going to like take you a while. No. Yeah. And it's painful and exhausting. And what we learned also is like there's snow on the ground now. And it was October in episode one because it was the day it was the anniversary. Uh -huh. So now we're probably in like November and December. It's been three three weeks is what three some, weeks. somebody says at some point. Since yeah. she joined. Yeah. So that means it's definitely like mid-November. Uh, mm -hmm. And she's just like, I don't know what you guys have been wanting me to do. What's the like magic method? What's the answer? I Once again, so many characters on Leftovers looking for answers. And she's like, can you just tell me how to be in the cult? And Laurie is just continuing her vow of silence and writing things like, you know, you need to work on this and finish this and we'll talk about it and patience and all that stuff. Yeah, Meg Even says, she says, you know, you guys are running a pretty shitty cult if you can't even join. <laughs> <laughs> True. She's I mean, good. Um, but she eventually, what's interesting is that uh, Patty goes up to, uh, to Laurie and is like, you're not harsh enough with her. She's like, I'm mm. already worried that she's going to leave. And then she goes back and she's a little bit more harsh. And then uh, after meeting Kevin and getting his business card, they're like, yeah, she's probably going to leave. And then at the end of the episode, we see that we're, they're like, she left. And they're like, uh-oh, but she left to go cut down the tree. And she's grinning the whole way through because she has found motivation in the guilty remnant and a purpose. I, I really loved the scene between Lori and Meg where Meg is like, well, do you remember what it's like to care about things? And Lori says, hey, you met my husband, huh? Hot well, cop? The hot cop? Hot <laughs> and cop. Why, are, why are you here? That dude's freaking hot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it says a lot about the guilty remnant, about Lori and about Meg, that the thing that gets Meg to stick around is not ultimately Laurie being more harsh. It's Laurie being vulnerable and opening up to Meg and saying like, look, I feel the same misgivings as you do. This is a weird place, but you know, and I know the reason that we're here. And at the end of the day, that reason kind of like outweighs this other stuff, which Seems to be the thrust of the whole episode that like kind of opening up to people being vulnerable with them is like this transformative thing, or at least that's what Kevin's dad says to him when he's right. like, Hey, be vulnerable. People love that shit. People love <laughs> that shit. Yeah. It's true. They do. They do the love that shit. The wonderful Scott Glenn. Yeah. I think it's also, also yeah, sorry. One other moment where there was a line that was way too on the nose when Meg's first cutting down the tree and she's like, so what, this is supposed to symbolize me like cutting down my old life. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't do that. And then end the episode with her chopping the tree. Like, look, remember when we told you this was a symbol? <laughs> I'm cutting down my old life. Like, okay. Yeah. You can't, yeah it's a, a cardinal sin to say the thing and then do the thing. Mm -hmm. 
She says also in that scene, I don't want to feel this way anymore, which is another big like motif of the season. He's like, I am tired of the way that living post-rapture feels. Uh, I don't know why it's the way it is. I feel numb. I just want to feel different. Uh, I want to be like the smiley pancakes that the Guilty Remnant gives me. <laughs> I don't want to smile or, or just feel feel differently. You know, like Nora said in the first episode, I'll take a day where all my family's all sick because at least that's something instead of this weird numbness that I have now all the time. Um, we do get a little bit of Nora, Nora Durst, um, just to briefly touch on this. It's a single scene mm-hmm. where uh, we learn that her job is basically super grim, and she is an insurance agent who interviews people whose family, friends, or people who are close to them were uh, taken away in the event, and she mm-hmm. interviews them to determine if they are deserving of uh insurance like a payout from the government for that yeah yeah this didn't make sense to me the first time i watched it and then the covid pandemic happened and Mm -hmm. i understood the the concept of means testing which is if you want to fall down a really depressing u.s policy rabbit hole look up means testing and why it's fucked up it's basically Uh long story short uh, instead of just giving to people who need it, we give the bare minimum to people who fall under a criteria that we decide is needing things. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a way to limit who gets care. It's a real, it's, it's awful. And she knows yeah. that she's like, these questions suck. I'm asking these kids about their, uh, these, these, these old folks about their, uh, their son with down syndrome and being like, did he have 20 or more partners? And it's like, I sh- hate, I hate this. She says it. <laughs> I'm watching it as a viewer. I hate it. The pa- the parents mm-hmm. hate it. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's her every day is she is a woman yeah. who literally can never stop thinking about the event. It happened to her whole family. You normally escape that kind of stuff at work. And her work is about confronting it again. It's very sad. Well, and it's, it seems like she, she's a really fascinating character because obviously she's haunted by it. But it seems like she uh, he, she has a, a grip on it or she doing this stuff is what helps her cope, like yeah. going up in front of the whole town and speaking at the parade or going to people's homes and helping them to get this payout. Um, she, she feels like oddly calm and equipped to do this thing. And then she's learned you know, how to let off steam here and there by, for example, just lightly pushing coffee mugs off the table to break them on purpose and then walk away. And that's just so fascinating to me. And I want to see lots and lots more of her doing stuff like that. And the moment where Jill trips and sees the gun in her bag was great. There's so many moments in this episode where there's just like a quick flash of, whoa. And then we're back to like not feeling something like we're when we're in the therapy office with Kevin and he's flashing back to the dogs, but it's like a half second, like the dogs Uh, moment Mm -hmm. and the gun felt similar where it was like blink and you miss it kind of shot of, of the gun. But yeah, I just find Nora really, really interesting and I want to see a lot more of her. I uh, said it before. Say it again. Favorite character on the show. Number one with a gun, literally number one with a gun. (laughs) She, um, there's like a bunch of characters intersecting in that diner, by the way. You know, she runs into Crystal Eccleston's character uh, and like gives him a hug. And you're like, these characters have something going on. We saw him in the first episode telling people that there are bad people who were whisked away. You know, that's his whole shtick. He also tells um, Amy and, and Jill about that. He's like, just so you know, 
bad people got this guy was like abusive to his kids and he got whisked away too so it's not just good people it's not a rapture um i think yeah there's gonna they're they're seeding a lot of things with this plot line and i'm it's honestly some of my favorite stuff um and we get this through the view of jill and amy which is such a funny i like this the levity of this i appreciate it because otherwise i think this episode would have been like just across the board bleak um that Jill and Amy are like teenagers who are trying to process all this weird stuff around them in the most baseline way you do mm-hmm. at 16 years old. Like when they see the gun, one of them says something like, I don't know, like I, she probably puts it in her mouth at night and says one more day, like just really, really bleak joke I would make if I was 16 and had no empathy uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, whatsoever. It was uh, more of that energy from the previous episode of the like miming the noose in homeroom. Yes. <laughs> which, yeah. Which was awesome. One of my favorite tones in this show. Because when you're that age and this this happens to you, you're like, I have no concept of what's inappropriate anymore. Like this is all just everything's weird. Yeah. They steal things. Uh, and I love the moment when Amy steals the jelly beans from Nora's car because they're tailing her. They're like, this woman seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. She has a gun. She takes mm-hmm. the jelly beans, and literally, I forgot the reveal. But in my head, I said, "Wouldn't that make? Oh, that would only make sense if those were her kids' jelly beans." And then she eats them. And she's mm-hmm. like, "They're so stale." And they're like, "Yeah, it's because it's her. She kept her children's jelly beans in her car." Damn, damn. It's really sad. Every time she opens her glove compartment, so she's like the guilty remnant in a way. She refuses to forget, um, which I think is just so interesting that they take like this light little moment, like the jelly beans being stolen, that you're like, "Oh, wow." Oh, yeah. wow. She's not letting herself forget. It's not even about, like, she can't anymore. She's choosing not to. Yeah. Uh, to keep stuff around like that. But, um, yeah, we get a little bit of, like, Jill and Amy and the twin boys who are just, like, little gremlins. And they're, like, trying to be cool and drive a car around and stuff. Mm-hmm. Not much to say there um, other than I thought. So those guys are cool. twins, right? The actors are twins. So I think that, yeah, they're also. Because there's a joke where Amy calls one of them something. And then she's like, oh, was that the wrong one? Like, because she okay. can't different because i like didn't i feel like i didn't even notice in the first episode they're not really shot like in the same shot one of them's wearing a hoodie the first time we see them yeah. and then in this one it's like these two perfectly symmetrical boys being like hey <laughs> come get in our car come get in our car yeah 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 it's they're Kinda clearly weird. not supposed <laughs> to be main characters but they keep coming up in jill's plot they helped her bury the dog they asked yeah. her to go to the party and now they're yeah. they're going around the car, so it's like, are you guys main characters or not? You can't. I need to see you. Right, right. You're not the Winklevoss twins in the Social Network. <laughs> <laughs> I think though, I don't have much else about like Jill and Amy's stuff, other than yeah, them tailing her, and that little detail. Uh, Jill notices, or we when she walks by Nora's car, Nora has four family members holding hands on the back mm-hmm. of her car. Yep, yep, yep. I saw that. Are you kidding me? Come on now. <laughs> That's whatever so whatever whatever set designer is doing all this like accoutrement you're doing it you did an amazing job mm-hmm. <laughs> i see you and yeah that's the main stuff for them so let's just let's wrap up here let's talk about kevin let's talk about our boy kevin garvey the goat yeah uh a lot going on here he is concerned about the mysterious gunman from episode one he's trying to explain this guy to people and spoiler nobody knows that the gunman nobody's seen him before nobody recognizes mm-hmm. him he doesn't have a name uh yep. his truck disappeared yeah, basically the whole episode, people treat Kevin with a light touch, but basically with the assumption that he is imagining this guy and that he, or that he's lying or something. Yeah. Um, 
and that it's his truck. He's the one that shot all the dogs himself. That's how it's clear that everybody's talking about him that way. Uh, he gets a call from his doofus cop friend, Dennis, who I love. And every <laughs> time Dennis it. is around, he's doing something wrong and it's great. Yeah. Um, the truck has ended up in his driveway and Dennis is like, we could say it was down the street. And Kevin's like, why would we do that? It's not my truck. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, man. Um, so clearly everyone thinks that Kevin is, has snapped or something, something's up with him. And then you learn why everybody's assuming that, which was, I thought a really skillful reveal that was surprising to me. Um, and I think adds a lot of weight to the Kevin plot it's weird because it's like introducing a new thing that isn't really related to, well, maybe it's related to the disappearance. I don't know. This sort of like what's real question. Mm-hmm. Um, but we basically learn that Kevin's dad has, would would we call this schizophrenia? Is that what this is? Or something. Uh, or um, dissociative identity disorder. It's unclear. But yeah, he has he, a he has a mental illness that's like causing him to talk to himself. Yeah, he's hallucinating other people and he seems pretty lucid in the conversation and then he starts talking to somebody who isn't there and so it's clear that Kevin like is scared of that happening to him too. Yeah. Um which then we sort of look back at the entire episode and reinterpret all that stuff through that lens. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. By the way, I, I came down at the end of this episode thinking the gunman is real. Uh, the gunman's a real yeah. person. Uh, it's just that we, it was so easy for us to believe that Kevin was hallucinating. Like the right. show, even though he's the protagonist, we still can be like, well, crap, his dad is like this. And he's had some thoughts about like, ba- like with the bagel scene, and all this stuff where he's like looking for things that aren't there. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe he isn't. Maybe the guy wasn't real. And you, you think you're having a sixth sense moment, but it's like, no, actually, sometimes we just struggle to grasp what is real, but it's happening. And we mm-hmm. just don't have the we don't have the right evidence for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the bagel scene. Should we just talk about it? I just want to say quickly before I get the bagel scene, because that's my favorite scene of this episode by a long shot. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's incredible. Um, Is that. Two two moments in Kevin's plot, and I think Kevin's plot in general in this show, I didn't love the first time I watched it, but now watching it again with a little bit more years on me and, like, living in a pandemic, I, like, it's a lot of it's just resonating so much harder. Uh, yeah. Like, him talking to his father and being like, I don't, I'm so afraid of this, like, mental illness happening to me and to my kids, and maybe this is why I'm like this. And, like, there's also a comfort in when he visits his dad towards the end. And being like, mm. it's parents can make you feel normal the way that nothing else in the world can. He doesn't have mm. his wife. He doesn't have his children. His dad is a person who, quote unquote, makes him feel normal. And yet his dad is talking to himself. And so it's just like that very, very yeah. heartbreaking moment of like, finally, the thing that makes me feel all right. And it's not. And maybe I'm right. not all right. It's like shoving right. it in your face. And that's so sad to me. Right. And There's no port in the storm for Kevin. Absolutely not. And I, yeah. I, I, my heart aches for this character, which I think is a successful like bit of writing there. Yeah. Um, well, there's that moment where the guy, the dog truck guy, 
yeah. invites him to go kill more dogs. And Kevin's like, why beers? don't you do it? <laughs> yeah, he brings some beers. And he's like, Kevin's like, what's your name? And he's like, hey, you're asking as a friend or a cop? Kevin's like, I'm not your friend. And he's like, then I'm not going to tell you. And then yeah. uh, towards the end, he's invited Kevin to go shoot some more dogs with him. And uh, Kevin's like, well, why don't you go do it yourself? And the guy says, because I'm lonely, which is yeah. like Kevin's deal, too. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to follow the ways in which Kevin's feelings of abandonment, isolation, losing his sense of what's real drives him potentially towards more kind of senseless acts of violence or dissociation from society. And, uh, yeah. Uh, didn't that, that's what, sorry. That's what, that's what happens to, you know, wounded men who can't talk about their feelings. Exactly. Um, He's seeing a therapist and the therapist sucks. (laughs) The therapist is like, what mystery man? What did the mystery man do? And he's like, can you stop calling him the mystery man? He's like, okay, what's his name? He's like, I don't know his name. Don't call him that, though. That's weird to say. (laughs) Um, And just the image of the penguin in the back. Oh, so Mm -hmm. funny. So good. Mm -hmm. Um, Some casting detail. Scott Glenn plays Kevin's dad, uh, who's just really bizarre casting. I like it, though. I I forgot about Scott Glenn being a cool, a pretty good actor. Um, and also that implication that he, like, he's the former police chief. So that's why Lucy knows him is he basically says like, I gave you your, your job, Kevin, you're, I'm the reason you have your job. Uh, so I gave you good things and I gave you bad things, like potentially hallucinations. Are Lucy and his dad together? She hugs him in a way that's very familial. I think Um, they kissed. Didn't they kiss? I wasn't sure. It's in the, it's kind of in the back of the shot. Okay. I saw your note about that, but I was not certain on that. I don't think I don't like remember some big plot line about Lucy and Kevin Senior uh, doing anything. Okay, to be honest with you. So that's I'm not trying to lead you in an opposite way or anything. I just don't remember that being a thing. Um, but yeah, so Scott Glenn's his dad, and Lucy knows him, and it's like again, I like that scene so much. It's just like oh, parents can really do like they have a power that not other people have. Um, so this bagel scene. I I cried, dude. I did not like tear up. I cried at the final bagel scene. And this is this yeah. is the magic moment of the leftovers. Is when you see from the outside, there's a scene where a guy gets a bagel out of a toaster oven, and it's the saddest fucking thing in the world. And from the outside, you're like, "Huh? Are you guys good?" <laughs> yeah, like you can't. There's some shows where you can put a scene up on YouTube or whatever, and it's like, "Oh my god, you got to check out this scene." But if you just showed someone, like, guys, guys, guys the bagel scene from the leftovers and played this for them out of context people would be like what (laughs) why are you you so sad right now weeping he got the bagel. okay so let's that's that's (laughs) what's what's on the page here when he's talking to lucy at the towards the beginning of the episode kevin puts two bagels in the toaster uh there's like a continuity to this which i love uh and then later he forgets about the bagels and they're burnt and he's like well they're not he opens the toaster oven and they're not in there and he like starts shaking it and all the crumbs fall out and he like starts banging the back of it, desperate. Please give me these bagels. Please, I need the bagels. Nothing mm-hmm. comes out. Later, end of the episode, the music is swelling. He in between, he sees Lucy with his dad, and he's like, "Did you take my bagels?" And she's like, "What?" And he's like, what "Huh? Bagels? What? Never mind." Uh, yeah, no bagels. Like, That's not weird. A coworker does see him banging the back of the toaster oven, and she's like, "Uh, <laughs> like this guy's <laughs> yeah. weird." Furthering yeah. our belief that maybe Kevin doesn't isn't like all the way here at first, right? But right. what happens is he unscrews the back of the toaster oven and he pulls out a burnt bagel, and it's like a freaking gold coin, 
and he goes he goes back in for one more and he gets a second burnt bagel and the hap the joy uh the the but also the like the like why am i happy about this moment too because like these are gross Mm -hmm. cold burnt bagels is what's really Mm -hmm. happening but everything is not on the page and that's the stuff that makes me cry it's i need something that makes me life feel normal I need a routine. Mm-hmm. For the love of God, give me breakfast. Just please give me something that feels normal. And they won't. And you lost. And why is this bagel gone? Where did it go? The, just like the people disappeared. Mm-hmm. Well, and to me, it's like I need proof that my perception of reality is giving me some kind of truth that I like yeah. still have a grip on what's going on. Yeah. And it's like a perfect metaphor for. Kevin's self-perception and other people's perception of him in this episode that he's like, look, I put the bagels in and and the bagels aren't coming out. And people are like, did you really put bagels in though? Because if they're not coming out, you probably didn't put bagels in. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure I put bagels in there. And he has to like take the back off the toaster to prove to himself that he really did put bagels in. Um, And isn't that like terrifying that mm-hmm. it has to go to that length and there can be that level of doubt about like, do I perceive the world around me? Can I trust myself? Can I expect people to trust me? Um, it's like so haunting and good. I like have nightmares about things like this. I think that's partly why this works for me is, and you and I have talked about this, right? Like the moment where you go like, Oh, I'm not, my like you said my perception isn't isn't exactly right my brain doesn't can't process this what do you mean there's no bagel in the thing i put it like he there is a shot i went back and watched it there is a shot where he puts bagels in the toaster oven but once he loses it you forget that that happened and you yourself the viewer are like did did kevin put bagels in the thing oh shit what do you mean and it's just like this worry that one like our world is not our perception is not reality and two, like is it happening again is something unexplainable happening in my life again because mm, i'm so right. burnt out and afraid from the last time this happened that like i can't mm. take not having bagels right now and that would right. be a moment that would also make me snap you know and like want to break something of course right because he's living in the world where two percent of all people disappeared with no explanation whatsoever. And so what even is real? And how do you like hold on to something and do, know it, that it's real? Do we also live in a world where 2% of all bagels disappear? Like, this could just, <laughs> it could just be true. We, we had like a bagel disappearance moment yeah. there while they were in the toaster. Yeah, it's, oh man. Yeah. It's, Again, it's one of those, like, if you watch in isolation, you're not going to like it. But if you can bring something to it and also watch the rest of the episode, you'll be like, yeah, bagel scene. One of the best. Yeah, you write whole episodes for scenes like this. Yes, and if this true. if this is what The Leftovers is, it's, like, kind of a pretty good, kind of weird episode that ends in, like, a perfect moment of visual poetry. Like, yeah, yes. sign, sign me up. Uh, I want it. I want it that's, all. That's the case. And you'll get it. Um do you have any stray notes on these episodes, Magellan? I'm skimming through chronologically through the episode. There's that dream sequence that Kevin has up top. With Amy? Yeah. Am I remembering correctly? Maybe you told this to me off episode, and I shouldn't say this because it's a spoiler for the book. 
No, uh, it doesn't happen in the book. It's more heavily implied in the book. What Majon's referring to is that Amy and and uh, uh, Kevin have like an implied. They they're like close to having a tryst in the yeah. in the book, but I don't think they actually do. I haven't read the book, but that's what I understand is that that's one of the biggest changes was the showrunners were like, we need to veer out of that hard. Uh, so yeah, so we're just gonna have a dream sequence where she's in bed with him. <laughs> like, good veer, guys. Nice work. Exactly. Veer. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I wrote therapy time with the titular duck. It's a penguin. Why did I write penguin. duck? When uh, did I write duck? Uh, <laughs> you're having a bagel <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, let's see. Little smiley face on the pancake that the guy makes for Meg. Yeah, really good. Something. There's something about that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's nice. Yeah. I like that Jill refers to Nora Durst's gun as not some bullshit lady gun. Lady gun. <laughs> it's fun. What does that even mean? I guess I know what that means. Like, I intuitively know what that means. Like, it's not yeah. a regular pistol. It's like a revolver, I guess. But Yeah. Um, when Jill and Laurie are in the woods and Jill, or sorry, not Jill, when uh, Meg and Laurie are in the woods and Meg is asking questions, I started to think about like, does Laurie on her pad have some pre-written things like, okay, or when she has the word why written. And then she also, at one point, Meg says that line about like, you're not a very good cult. And Laurie has something that says not a cult. I feel like she also just has that pre-written. Yeah, it's gotta be page one. Yeah, and Meg says, so what is it? And Laurie just shrugs and doesn't answer the question. Fuck if I know, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm just here, yeah. I really liked the scene between Kevin and Meg's fiance. Yeah. Where You realize Kevin, that they're the same character. <laughs> right, right, right. And Kevin rightfully says you could convince her to leave because the guilty remnant people are worried that she's going to leave. She's on the verge of leaving. Yeah. And clearly it seems like Kevin is speaking from experience that Lori, because Lori and Meg seem like very similar characters in terms of how they feel about the guilty remnant and themselves in the world. Um, And so it seems like Kevin's speaking from experience of, I had a moment where I probably could have convinced Lori to come home. I didn't do it. I fucked it up or whatever. And now sometimes I show up there and I try to convince her and it's way too late. And so he's trying to like speak to this guy and get that guy to make a different choice. And the guy stares at him in the face and says, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> like, <laughs> why would I do that? And uh, I don't know. I just thought that was such such a good scene. Yeah. Uh, and the look on Kevin's face as he thinks, uh, yeah, why, why would I do that? I don't know. I, I want to go home and take a bath. Same, Kevin. Yeah. I never thought I would like Kevin Garvey. It's so weird. I genuinely did not like yeah. this main character back in the day. Mm. Yeah. Uh, my last thing is, does the bald guy always just have like chewing tobacco in his lip? Is that what's going on there? I always thought he had a weird mouth, but I think it is a chewing tobacco thing. Okay. Not weird. Sorry. People have different looking mouths. He has a like uniquely shaped mouth or and or, yeah, he's chewing tobacco. Yucky. It's more likely because it's like his bottom lip is swollen up. So I think it's, yeah, he's probably. Yeah. I wish that guy just got a name. Like, I know he's real, but I also want them to be like, hey, what's up? My name's Phil. All right. Hey, Phil. <laughs> we shoot dogs. <laughs> That's fine. Mm-hmm. They shoot dogs, don't they? Blah. 
you want to talk about what we're watching next week on the chats overs alan maybe you should do it so i don't get spoiled on stuff Ooh, i don't want you to get yeah. spoiled oh, i hope you're excited because next week we have a couple of bangers okay first up is two boats and a helicopter Reverend Jameson is struggling with people referring to the departed as heroes. He's faced with death threats and a diminishing attendance at his sermons, and then finds out he may lose his church to foreclosure. Hmm. Okay, that's a character I've wanted to see more of. Yep. So you're going to get a lot of Christopher Eccleston. This is like a top tier. I don't want to overhype it. This is a top tier episode. I have always been a big fan of like, let's put the main plot on pause for 50 minutes and just talk about someone else. Yeah. It's great. Uh, yeah, sure. We're all starting season one, episode four. BJ and the AC, number one on ninety-seven point five. BJ and the AC. Huh. A holiday display goes missing, sending Kevin scurrying to find out who is responsible. Tom and Christine run into trouble at the hospital on the road. Hmm. Tom and Christine, eh? Hmm. Yeah, it's more. It's the Tom. It's the Tom centric. Not entirely Tom's Tom episode, but it's a big Tom episode. Hmm. <laughs> I just I, you're not you're not gonna see Wayne every week. I'll tell you that when it's just like Tom and Christine hanging out, I think that plot does a little bit better. But it was never my favorite originally. So mm-hmm. that's what I'll say. Yeah, I'm not Groovy. super interested. In it. Groovy. Um, Magellan, can you tell the folks where people can find you on the podcast sphere? Sure, you can hear me on another podcast called Super Smash Echoes, where I talk with my good friend Justin about video games inspired by super smash brothers and the characters in there or the games they're from or whatever we're just exploring the ways that our sense of video games echoes through games and pop culture and super smash echoes instead of bros it's like a little rhyme kind of type of thing uh it's a monthly book club for games that you should listen to and it's fun super smash echoes alan what about you you got other shows I do. If you're listening to this on the main chats feed, you know that we also do Should You Watch and Trek Chats on here. Uh, Should You Watch is our show where we watch every month a currently airing or popular current TV show and tell you whether or not it's worth your time. And every three months we do Trek Chats where we watch Star Trek and tell you what it's like as a first timer delving into the world of Gene Roddenberry's fucked up brain. (laughs) Um, No, but myself personally, I am on uh, the Hunter's Quorum which is a Monster Hunter podcast where my friend Six and I and some cavalcades of guests talk about the monsters of Monster Hunter. And we talk about their armor sets and whether or not they're cool and weird and everything. Um, it's a fun gaming comedy podcast, and I recommend you check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but that's what we got. Magellan, can you hit us with a plug sound for chats this week, please? Surely you can get in touch with us in a few different ways. You can email us at chatspot at gmail.com with your questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, requests to be on the show. If you want to join us for a discussion of a leftovers episode, please let us know. We would love to have you. Or you can also send us a message about the leftovers that you would like us to read on the show, and we would do that as well. Uh, we love to incorporate listener voice and and get some a range of opinions on the show that that's really fun for us. So the email is a place to, to do that. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash chats pod. 
And you can join fellow listeners in a few different places over on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash chatspod, where we're listening through current and old episodes of the podcast and discussing them. And you can join us on our Discord, which is a benefit for dollar and up patrons. But you could also just say, please, can I come on the Discord? And we'll say, okay, come on, shh, come on in. Check out all the different channels we got. It's all the different shows and all sorts of things. Um, speaking of the Patreon, you can support the show with your money. One, three, or five dollars a month. One dollar gets you access to the Discord and some old bonus content, as well as my solo journey through the X Files called the Chats Files, which I release when I can, and I love it. Uh, three dollars gets you access to regular monthly bonus content, including piloting shows, discussing other topics, or doing commentaries on movies. Um, some of those chosen by us, some of them chosen by recommendation from our listeners, and put on a big wheel that we spin. I make little videos where we spin the wheel and stuff. And then uh, $5 a month gets you all that stuff and gets you our gratitude. Everybody has our gratitude, but we voice our gratitude for our $5 a month patrons here at the end of every episode. Thank you to Arthur, Jen, Kat, Lee, my mom, Marcus, Michael, Nick, and Pat of the Brothers at Infinite War, Fendon, Six, and Stefan. You can also go over to chatspod.com. You can rate the show wherever you listen to it. That would be super helpful. You can support at Camillustrator, the illustrator of our podcast art, our friend Camilla. And uh, that's that's all the stuff. Alan. Yes, sir. Do you have something else, you know, after you finish your meal, mm-hmm. right? Mm. You haven't eaten all of it. Maybe put some of it in a little box in the fridge. Come back to it the next day to have a little morsel, something to snack on between now and your next big meal. A leftover, if you will. A leftover, <laughs> or in this case, a chatsum. Yummy. Yeah, chatsum? I do, Magellan. Folks who keep up with us know that I read. I try to read a book a month. That's my goal in 2022. I've been exceeding that goal lately, and I started my June book. It is A Natural History of Transition by Callum Angus. Uh, This is a book I didn't plan to read for Pride Month, but it worked out really nicely. It's basically a series of stories, poetic in nature, sometimes realistic, sometimes magically realistic, about trans people from across the world and across time. Um, Not always based in reality, but often based in truth, if that makes sense. Um, It's really beautiful so far. I'm like about a quarter of the way through it. It's a brief read. Um, all the stories are short themselves, so it's just like bop, 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 bop. You're just going through all these little narratives, and you're like, oh, my God, this girl's living her life in like in England. Oh, my God, this guy is in a world where he changes genders every six months. Like, if you're – I just – I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff for obvious reasons. I've been, like, questioning my gender and, and confronting that part of my identity for the last couple of years. And um, it's recommended to me by uh, – a a person in the queer community who uh i haven't talked to in a while so it's kind of been my connection to an old old friend but um it is a hist- a natural history of transition by callum angus uh and you can just google that and you should be able to find it i believe it's only available on like the publisher's website because it's a pretty small release um i don't think it's on amazon i could be wrong but um definitely check it out if any of that sounds up your alley it's beautiful wow that sounds really cool yeah it is i think huh. you would like it yeah i'm really curious about it what about you? Do you have a chat for this week? I do. <laughs> so we've been watching Obi-Wan for our Should You Watch for this month 
Obi-Wan Kenobi, I should say, uh, which you can hear us discuss at the end of the month of June. And it's really reminded me that I like Star Wars and it's okay to like it (laughs) Um, because the sequel trilogy kind of like made me sad about Star Wars for a long time. Um, But I, because of that, have been watching tons of Star Wars video essays and there's this great Star Wars video essay channel called So Uncivilized and uh, they have an essay on there about I think my favorite one of theirs that I've seen is, oh, there's one really good one that's like about George Lucas being the king of wooden dialogue um, and like why that actually has some value, dialogue being wooden. Um, And then I really like there's one about like how Luke Skywalker is a really unique and interesting protagonist whose like protagonist journey is more nuanced than uh, what a lot of like Luke Skywalker derivative characters end up going through. Uh, so I would check out So Uncivilized if you're looking for Star Wars things, if you're in that Kenobi zone. Oh, I want to always spend my time in life in the Kenobi zone. Yeah, me too. Sounds really fun. Yeah. Oh, Magellan, thank you for being the cigarette to my Guilty Remnant member. Ooh. I, I keep you around to, so I never forget. Thank you, dear listener, for being here and enjoying your time with us. I hope you enjoyed it. And hey, folks, thanks for listening to Chats of Television Podcast, where we watch so you remember. <laughs>